And hello and welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMS Radio. This is Steve, I'm your host each week as we talk about politics and the machine and what's going on here in the United States. So, I hope everybody is well and safe. Coronavirus, COVID-19, continues to be the 2,000-pound gorilla in the room, affecting just about everything that occurs here in the United States. So we're going to get into uh, what's going on, not only with COVID in terms of its impacts, but also with in, in, as we speak each week on the machine called politics here, what's going on with uh, the games that are being played, the strategies that are trying to be put out there, how our politicians are responding to this pandemic. And we've got quite a bit to uh, get through today, so let's dive right in, okay? All right, so uh, we talk about uh, what's going on with COVID-19. Let's start with, unfortunately, let's start with our numbers. Uh, Here in the United States, uh, right now we are at uh, about 1.2 million cases that have been reported. Uh, Over 69, I'm sorry, 67,000 people uh, have uh, died from the disease and uh, it continues to impact everything that we do with our everyday lives. Uh, Globally, more than three and a half million people have been infected with the the virus. 247,000 people have uh, died from it, and we are getting reports in the global uh, market that uh, 1.125 million people have actually recovered from the illness. Uh, we don't have figures in, in the United States yet as the information coming out of the states is too fragmented to give us an accurate picture. But hopefully as testing and tracing uh, gets more prevalent and gets more normal around the country, we'll start to see numbers on how many people actually uh, are acquiring the disease but end up getting uh, past it, uh, recovering from it. So we'll, we'll talk a little more as, as we go through the program on uh, COVID-19. As I said, it uh, is woven into the fabric of everything that, that's going on these days. Um, but uh, moving right into what this show focuses on, I want to talk about what our politicians are doing uh, in, in response to and in addressing uh, this, this pandemic in our, in our country. And there's been some interesting uh, things that have come out of Washington, D.C. and come out of the states over the past week or so. Uh, you know, for starters, President Trump uh, is trying to move forward an agenda to tie aid to the states uh, for the amount of money that they're expending to battle the disease uh, through elimination of uh, sanctuary cities in those states that have them. So, you know, what does that mean? Well, sanctuary cities are places where uh, immigrants uh, can settle in as they work their way through the system towards citizenship and where they are protected in some sense from, you know, uh, deportation and other, you know, law enforcement uh, efforts uh, that are trying to limit the number of immigrants that uh, end up being in this country. We shouldn't forget that uh, even though the virus is taking up a lot of the oxygen in the space, the administration still has an anti-immigration 
policy and strategy in place where they are trying to limit the number of people that come into this country, not just because of the potential for their bringing you know, more virus into the country, but just in general, a continuation of its efforts to limit the amount of immigrants that uh, come into the United States seeking uh, relief and seeking asylum and seeking citizenship. Um, you know, this idea that, you know, the federal government is going to tie, you know, how much money or if they give money at all to states, to their policies on sanctuary cities. Uh, one of the things is that this is going to impact uh, democratically controlled or so-called blue states to a much higher extent than it is going to impact uh, Republican or so-called red states, uh, even though the, the approach does in fact impact some of those states that would fall into the red category. So, you know, while the, the virus uh, battle is going on, there are still things that are happening, you know, in our, in our government, in our political system, that are impacting, you know, people of color and, you know, uh, disproportionately impacting those who are disenfranchised and, you know, the, the most vulnerable of us uh, with regard to their status from becoming an, an immigrant into moving toward a citizenship status. Uh, in, in other news, uh, last week, Vice President Mike Pence went to the Mayo Clinic to visit with patients and talk about what's going on with the, co the COVID virus and what the government is doing, uh, which, you know, on, on a standalone basis, that's a pretty good thing. The problem is, is that he went into a hospital that has a requirement for uh, face masks and, you know, uh, PPE to protect against transmission of the disease. And he very publicly and very noticeably was not wearing a mask and, you know, was not taking, you know, appropriate protective uh, measures. Uh, when asked about it by the media, the vice president said his, his reasoning was because he is being regularly tested and does not have the disease, he does not believe that he needs to wear a mask. So, you know, that runs counter to everything that the medical community uh, and the administration itself is putting out there about how we need to, to battle this disease. You know, the, the number one and number two things are, you know, social distancing, keeping separation between yourself and other people who may or may not be infected, and in personal protective equipment, including masks and gloves, to protect against the spread and transmission of the disease, uh, which as we know, uh, primarily is a uh, mechanism of uh, contact from surfaces, as well as you know, spray and shedding the disease from you know, breathing and sneezing and coughing. Uh, those are the, the two major factors that seem to trigger the spread of the disease. And the more we control that, the, the, the more we impact the number of new cases and, you know, number of people who potentially could uh, die from this disease. So, you know, it's a, a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do uh, approach. And, you know, the, the vice president has been criticized very heavily for, you know, not taking the precautionary measures uh, as seriously as he should. This is definitely something that, you know, we the people need to be addressing. We should be communicating 
with our leaders and letting them know that you know they expect us to follow these guidelines they need to lead by example they need to do that you know the the president has gone on record as saying you know he doesn't quote like to wear masks and you know uh doesn't believe that he needs to for the same reason the vice president stated that you know he is regularly tested uh, because of who he is and and his office and he you know doesn't need to to follow those protocols you know and the the there's a hypocrisy there that is is real and visible uh, not only are the optics really bad but you know how can you say you know to to the people that you know we expect we in some cases require uh, that you wear these these protective devices when we ourselves are not going to wear them so you know more information and and more uh, just kind of a a lack of adherence to the policies that they preach really kind of lends to the confusion that's going on about this illness um, as we look at, you know, what the response has been in the states, uh, and, and we're going to talk about uh, a couple of points on that in a minute, but uh, one of the things that the federal government is doing to give assistance uh, for states whose budgets are absolutely bleeding uh, as a result of their response to the, the pandemic, uh, and it comes out of the GOP leadership, they are insisting that, you know, number one, that Congress set limits on the legal liabilities uh, as a result of the, the disease. And uh, according to Politico, the, the approach is that, you know, if there is a legal uh, attack from, as a result of the disease, that the federal government would like to offer protection to the states so that their liability in this is limited. Uh, one example cited uh, and, and came out of, uh, I believe, a press conference held by New York Governor Cuomo was talking about what is the responsibility of the state locally for you know, someone who acquires the illness and dies as a result of you know, getting the, the disease on a public transit system or in some other you know, public or government property or, or, you know, building or so forth. The idea is being touted as, as a protection that the states need, although, uh, at least according to the information I've seen so far, the states themselves are not requesting protection from the federal government at this point for any legal responsibilities that may arise from the, the COVID-19 pandemic. And, you know, as I said earlier, um, you know, the federal government is looking to, to ban or bar dollars going to states that support sanctuary cities. And this is just indicating, you know, how there, there is a, a strategy out there that says, you know, we want you to work with your populations and, and get them well, but we're not going to give you all the tools you need in your tool chest in order to get it done. So again, you know, we need to be talking to our leaders we need to be talking to our elected officials uh, at the local level and all the way up to the federal level to say, you know, look, you know, this is a pandemic. This is impacting us both economically, physically, you know, and emotionally. We need assistance and we expect our government 
to come to our aid. Um, so you know that's that's going on. Uh, another game that that surfaced late last week was that the uh, House uh, committee uh, wanted to hear testimony from Dr. Fauci, and the White House is blocking uh, his testimony in front of the of this House committee, uh, which, as you know, the House of Representatives being democratically controlled. Uh, and the, the White House wants to impede Dr. Fauci from testifying to them. However, in the same day, they announced that he would be allowed to testify before a Senate uh, subcommittee uh, on the coronavirus uh, disease and, and what the government is doing about it, uh, which, again, speaks to uh, a, a, a very hypocritical approach to things. The House is controlled by Democrats. The Senate is controlled by Republicans. So what the White House is saying is that we're not going to let you talk to the Democrats, but you can talk to the Republicans all day long as much as you want. Uh, that is, you know, patently political, patently uh, a game and something, again, that we need to be talking about and, and bringing to the attention of our elected officials. Uh, on the subject of, of bringing attention to the impacts of coronavirus and you know its, its impacts on our society, there have been even more demonstrations that have occurred over the past week uh, in, in some areas in Wisconsin and Michigan and other states where protesters are gathering you know, at the state house. There was a big news article uh, showing a large group of protesters gathered outside a, a state capitol building um, and not only were these people not, you know, staying, you know, uh, physically apart from each other, they were not wearing masks. They also took the opportunity to bring their weapons and openly display their weapons, you know, long rifles and assault weapons and so forth, uh, on display on the steps of the state capitol. And, you know, the, the optics of it, of course, are saying, you know, they are protesting the government, quote, telling them what to do, close quote, when it comes to the, the COVID virus. Uh, however, you know, it, it presents a very scary picture that, you know, the, the possibility or even the remote chance that there might be some type of, you know, mass protest or armed protest or violent protest that comes as a result of the COVID-19 virus uh, is something that you know we, we should look at very carefully and you know make sure that you know we we are are being uh, sensible about things uh, while you know the 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 law allows them to you know carry their weapons you know in in the open in public and you know I am and totally supportive of the Second Amendment you know, we do have to keep in mind that this is the message that this is sending. You know, America is not an armed camp. You know, we are a democracy of, you know, people and the people control how the government is supposed to do its work. And we need to make sure that, you know, we are, are, are sending the right message to not only the country, but to the rest of the world as to, you know, what America is all about. So, you know, there, there are a lot of things that have been happening of late. Um, 
you know, and and the next one that I want to get into and spend some time on is, you know, over the past uh, week, 10 days, uh, out to two weeks, uh, a bunch of states uh, have, you know, pressured the government to ease restrictions and allow them to begin to reopen their states. You know, as I said earlier, the, the state's you know, economies are taking a tremendous hit on, you know, as, as a result of this virus, um, you know, and they are, are looking to begin to return to, you know, some sort of, you know, normal, and put that in quotes, uh, operation and, and daily activity level in the states. So, you know, so far, states that have, have you know, stated that they are reopening to either a limited or, or some type of managed level include the following. Alabama, Alaska, Colorado, Georgia, Idaho, Iowa, Maine, Minnesota, Mississippi, Montana, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, and Wyoming. Now, it should be noted that the states mentioned are ones where uh, populations are not as dense. Uh, the, the number of people per, per square mile is a lot lower than you might have in states like California or Florida or New York or others. So, you know, the, the idea of keeping distance between groups uh, is something that, you know, could be you know, better accomplished in those states. However, when you look at the numbers in terms of new cases and new deaths coming, most of these states have not, uh, as the medical experts told us, gone over the peak of the, the virus impact and, and are actually seeing declining you know, cases and declining deaths. They are still working their way up the peak, so they still have the worst of this disease yet to go through. So the idea that you want to uh, undo the, the restrictions that have been put in place in terms of businesses that can be open uh, that are considered non-essential and social distancing and you know, protective gear that, that should be worn you know, really puts the people at risk in these states. And the fear is that you know, these uh, rush to reopen are going to trigger a reoccurrence of the the pandemic and expansion of the pandemic uh, to to these states and beyond that could you know lengthen the amount of time we're going through this and lengthen the severity and the ultimate you know death rate that it comes from it. Um, some other states that have you know re restrictions being lifted you know this week and over the next ten days or so. Uh, are Florida, Indiana, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and West Virginia. And again, these states, to their credit, they are looking at a phased reopening. They are looking very carefully at what businesses will be allowed to reopen. But the bottom line is, you know, many of these states have not seen the worst of this disease yet and are still, in fact, increasing the number of cases that occur each day and you know, risking stressing their hospitals to the breaking point in order to care for you know, additional patients that come in. Now, 
you know, while 18 states, as I just listed, have have some form of reopening, you know, ongoing, and the the six that I listed that are looking at moving into a reopening of their economies, you know, over the coming weeks, 27 states still have shutdowns or restrictions in place. Although, you know, in, in certain areas and, and so forth, the resistance to that is growing and the pressure to reopen those states is increasing. And, you know, those 27, Arizona, Arkansas, California, Connecticut, Delaware, District of Columbia, Hawaii, Illinois, uh, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Jersey, New Mexico, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Oregon, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Vermont, Virginia, Washington State, and Wisconsin. And again, these are states that have a higher population density in general, and the, the risk and ease of which the, the pandemic can spread is much greater in those states than in others. So, you know, as we move to try and, you know, restore our economy, both at the state level, the local level, and the national level, you know, it, it's clear we need to make sure that we are doing this safely, that, you know, we are following the guidelines that have been set out by our government. You know, the White House announced uh, early last week uh, the, the plan for reopening the states. Uh, the plan has three phases and has uh, you know, guidelines or mileposts that must be met in order for a state to reopen itself, you know, economically and, and begin to return to something more like normal business operation. Uh, however, the states that have already opened, the overwhelming majority of them have not even met one of the criteria in the first phase of the reopening, and that is that they had 14 days of declining new patient admissions for the COVID-19 disease. Most of these states have not had that 14 days. They are either in process toward that uh, or they, they just have not met it at all. So it bears watching to see how the states are proceeding forward with this and that we must continue to make sure that you know we as, as the citizens are weighing in and letting our elected officials know that you know while yes everybody wants to get back to work myself included uh, we definitely make sure that we want to do it safely you know uh, one of the impacts of this this virus is that unemployment uh, now is you know over 37 million 38 million people are unemployed uh, we've actually gone back to numbers that were in, in, in our, our system or in our society uh, in 2008 at the time of the Great Recession. There was, you know, unemployment levels have, you know, eliminated all of the gains of the past 12 years. And, you know, we're, we're back where we were uh, in, in those days. So, you know, there's a lot going on with this. It is an ongoing struggle and something that we must stay vigilant on and, you know, pay attention to and be communicating. So in other news, and, and this one really kind of 
you know, snapped my head around as I, I came across it. Um, the, the White House announced that the White House gift shop has put on sale for you know, people uh, to purchase a COVID coronavirus commemorative coin. Uh, the coin is uh, listed at $125, although it's on sale for $100. Uh, and the White House says that proceeds are going to go to hospitals to uh, assist them with their costs of dealing with the disease. So I, it's, a, it's a noble cause, but do we really want to have a commemorative coin of a global pandemic that has killed more than, you know, or that has infected over a million people and, you know, killed more people than, than, uh, than died in the Vietnam War. Uh, I, I just kind of look at that side eye and go, really? Is that what we want to do? You know, and, you know, while it's not a, a, a political game, um, <clears throat> again, excuse me, it does kind of paint an optic picture of uh, sort of a lack of concern over the seriousness of this illness, uh, something that you know this administration uh, has been been tagged with pretty much from day one. You know, initially the response to this pandemic, as we learned about it back in you know December and January. Uh, was that it was not going to be a major thing. There'd be, you know, a couple of dozen cases and it would pass when the weather turned warm. You know, all of these things were, were put out there, you know, by the administration, particularly by President Trump. And as, as a initial response and a reason to why there was such a delay in the response by the country to this illness, which you know, some experts are saying ties directly to the number of people who have died from this disease. You know, and you can argue that point you know, back and forth, uh, but again, it, it really is you know, part of a collection of actions and opinions and, and optics that this administration has put out that shows that they, you know, at, at, you know, now they take it seriously, but initially they didn't. And because of that delay, that you know, two-month delay in, in taking you know, positive, affirmative, aggressive action, you know, people have suffered and people have died. You know, and that's gotta be something that we, we hold on to and we keep track of as we are, lest we forget, in an election year. And it's, it's going to be and it's already become you know, a, a political and campaign issue for both the Democrats and Republicans as we move toward the national election in November. So, you know, let's um, let's digest on that. Uh, we'll take our we'll take our break here, and then when we come back, we're going to talk a little more about. I have been through a whole lot, trial tribulation, but I know God. Satan well wanna put me in a bow tie. Pray that the holy water don't go dry. Yeah, yeah. As I look around me, so many motherfuckers wanna tell me, but they don't gonna never drown me. In front of a dirty double mirror, they felt me, and I love myself. The world is a What you gonna do? 
Lift up your head and keep moving. Well, let the paranoia haunt you. Peace the fashion, police, I wear my heart. On my sleeve, let the runway start. You know the men's about do love company. What do you want from me and my scars? Everybody lack confidence. Everybody lack confidence. How many times my potential was anonymous? How many times the city making me promises? So I promise this. I love myself. The world is a Frustration, keep y'all on tuck and rotation. I duck these cold faces, post up, he five four for faces. Dreams are reality's peace. Blow steam in the face of the beast. The sky can fall down, the wind can cry now. The strong in me, I still smile. I love myself. The world is And we're back. Welcome back to Fire It Up. This is Steve right here on WJMSRadio.com. And we're getting into our discussion of the impacts of the coronavirus uh, across the political spectrum as well as the economic and social uh, panorama here in the American area. So 
uh, it, it bears mentioning a little bit as we return to our discussion of the impacts of this, this illness on our country uh, uh, to clear up perhaps a little bit of confusion as to what exactly uh, coronavirus is and, and actually and more accurately uh, it should be called you know, COVID-19. Uh, but it is one of a family of illnesses that, that are categorized under the, uh, the heading of coronavirus. Uh, and these uh, include, believe it or not, the common cold uh, that we get. We've all gotten colds. Uh, it includes the flu uh, or influenza that reoccurs in, in our country and in the world every year. Uh, but it also, you know, uh, this, this family contains three of the more serious viruses, one of which is, is SARS or SARS-CoV, which uh, first popped up in 2002 and is, is based on a severe acute respiratory syndrome, hence the name SARS. Uh, that, that virus actually was treated and uh, disappeared two years later uh, in 2004, uh, there was another one called Middle East Rep yeah, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, or MERS. Uh, that one appeared uh, in uh, September of 2012, and and continues to pop up sporadically in various areas of the world. Uh, so that one is still out there. Uh, this one, you know, again, one of the three considered most serious coronaviruses uh, or COVID-19, uh, so named because it was first identified in 2019. Uh, and, you know, it has emerged as the others have uh, from, uh, from China, from, from uh, Asia and the Middle East and has spread globally to become the pandemic we're now dealing with. Uh, so, you know, while the coronavirus family is not new and we have been dealing with uh, members of this clan, you know, for many, many years, uh, the latest version, so-called COVID-19, uh, is new and, and prior to this had not been seen by the medical community. Hence, you will sometimes hear it called as novel COVID-19 basically that it is a new strain of the coronavirus family designated under uh, COVID-19. So, you know, this illness, you know, is not something, you know, uh, totally out of left field. It follows a lot of the same trajectories as some of the other family members. Uh, so it raises the question as to why this illness has infected so many people so quickly and cause so much death and, and disruption, you know, around the world. And, you know, part of that is due to the fact, again, that it is new, that there were no treatments there, you know, uh, that were out there. There were no uh, vaccines, even though those are in the works. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about where that strategy is going in a minute. Um, but that this illness was something that we had not seen before, and it is transmitted along a path, along a trajectory that makes it especially contagious in that it is shed by, by humans through uh, droplets uh, that 
are exhaled either in sneezes or coughs or even due to normal breathing. You know, we exhale water vapor from our lungs as we breathe. And these vapors, these tiny droplets, uh, can contain the virus and allow it to attach to surfaces or allow it to you know, infect other people through inhalation or you know, contact you know, from a surface to your hand and then you touch your face and bada boom, bada bing, you get COVID-19. So you know, this goes into why we have to, number one, stay you know, six feet or more apart from other individuals, why there has been a requirement to limit the number of groups that get together uh, initially, it was at 250, and then that got downgraded to 100, and then down to 50. And now, you know, it is groups of 10 or more really need to exercise extreme caution, which makes, you know, this this opening of the states and the the urge by people to get back to the social interactions they were used to prior to this disease uh, that much more difficult to achieve. Um, so, you know, in, in, in looking at how this, this pandemic is impacting our country, not only just from a political standpoint in the, the successes and the, the failures by our government in its response to this pandemic, uh, and, you know, let, let, not to be totally negative, uh, the, the government, you know, from federal down through states and local have been doing yeoman work in combating this disease and in being flexible and pivoting quickly when you know some new uh, requirement has needed to be implemented or some new uh, contagion path has been identified. Uh, you know we our, our government has done some things very well. You know uh, we have seen. Uh, the states step up where, you know, the federal government dragged its heels a little bit. The states took it upon themselves in the form of their governors uh, to implement, you know, local and statewide policies to try and combat this disease. Uh, and it is because of this effort, you know, that we've seen that the states are, you know, really hurting economically. And, you know, in, in researching this, I came across uh, a transcript of a conference that happened uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago out at the University of California, Berkeley. And, you know, this event uh, was a, a conversation, one of a series that they have at UC Berkeley. And this one was discussing the economic and policy impacts of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And, you know, in particular, it was focused on, you know, the economic resources and, you know, the, the public uh, policy resources and public response that this illness is causing us to have to undertake in order to, you know, affect this illness, to, to, to retire it, you know, so to speak, and, and basically make it... Uh, no more impactful than, you know, the flu is each year. And we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, in a minute as we look at some options that are out there as to how this disease will progress. Um, out of this conference, they agreed that the, repo the recovery program 
uh, has to focus on workers and communities uh, in order to, to assist them to return to a more near normal state of being. One of the other outcomes from this conference was a discussion on the impact that this is having on various disenfranchised and, and um, you know, poor and other uh, impacted populations, particularly uh, African Americans and people of color who are bearing the brunt of this crisis for a, a number of reasons, including historical uh, health care treatment, uh, historical physical condition, you know, and other things that have made, you know, in, in some cases uh, that African Americans are, even though they may be a small portion of the population, they are, you know, an overwhelming amount of the victims of this illness. Uh, there's, there's been one report that came out of, I believe it was New Orleans, that said as many as 78 to 80 percent of the cases of COVID-19 currently being treated are African-American. And, you know, the same thing is going on with other communities around the country, Latino and Native American, where, you know, historically healthcare treatment has been way below what the national average is or the national standard is. And this has placed these groups at an oversized risk for contracting this disease and also having an adverse uh, result. So, you know, there, there is the health component of it that has created some issue in our country, uh, as well as the, the general cost of recovery program. You know, this has, has required the states in particular to go in some new and novel directions uh, in terms of how they combat this illness. You know, for example, you know, when we talk about, you know, California and New York, uh, in New York, uh, they have undertaken a process where in New York City, for example, uh, every night they shut down the public transit system from 1 a.m. to 5 a.m. so that the trains, the subway cars, and all of these can be disinfected and cleaned. Uh, you know, now New York is a 24-hour city. There are people that work there. There are people who you know work overnight. There are people who you know have early morning shifts and they rely heavily on public transportation. So they have had to come up with alternate means of getting people from point A to point B. You know, whether it's replacing subway trains with buses. Uh, or, or some other means, uh, which has created a huge economic impact uh, on the city and on the state of New York. Um, you know, and, and you know, it, this, this is extremely serious. You know, to date, you know, we've had, you know, over 100,000 people have died from this disease nationwide. And, you know, as I said earlier, you know, more than a million people have been infected. You know, and we, as a result, uh, have been isolated in our homes. You know, businesses have shut down. So, you know, we're not going out. We're not, you know, uh, going to restaurants and movie theaters and bowling alleys and pool halls. You know, we're not going to hairdressing salons and barbershops, you know, and, and other places where we normally would go and be in close proximity with other people.
you know, um, one of the other elements that came out of this conference uh, that says, you know, as much as a third of the U.S. economy uh, may be impacted or shut down as a result of this pandemic, you know, unemployment may rise as high as 25 percent. Uh, and we haven't seen those kinds of unemployment numbers since the Great Depression. Uh, millions have, of, of Americans have filed for unemployment due to you know, job loss related in one form or fashion to the COVID disease. Um, you know, a, a union uh, out in California that represents 307,000 hotel and restaurant workers nationwide reports that as much as 98% of their workforce is out of work because hotels, of course, and restaurants uh, are shut down. Uh, California is estimating that it could lose 20 to $50 billion in tax revenue, just California. Um, and you know this is going to have to be paid out of its existing $200 billion annual budget. You know, so our federal government responded with a relief package that uh, has a price tag of around two trillion with a T dollars, uh, and you know that was you know distributed as aid to businesses, um, aid to to some states and affected communities, but mostly as direct aid to the American people. Uh, many of you, if not all of you, have probably received or will receive shortly your uh, stimulus check uh, in the amount of about $1,200, depending upon your income and other criteria, uh, that is intended to help ease your, your, your way through being you know, kept at home and not able to go to work and, and all of that. Um, one of the people, one of the experts that was at this uh, estimates that an additional $2.3 trillion of additional relief uh, targeting small businesses and local governments still needs to be you know, distributed and Congress is going to have to uh, create that and pass that law and, and get it signed by the president uh, in order for additional aid to flow out to other areas of the economy that are being impacted by this disease. So, you know, one of the experts at the uh, conference um, stated that, you know, there are additional priorities that need to be addressed. You know, one, expanding support under the food stamp program. Uh, obviously, people who are out of work don't have enough money and, you know, need help between making the choices of rent and food. Uh, increased support for renters and increased aid to state governments. As I mentioned earlier, states are bleeding money rapidly uh, in combating this disease, uh, you know, and it, it's something that the federal economy is suffering as a result, and the federal government is going to need to uh, address. Now, you know, the, the United States, you know, has a, a $22 trillion economy uh, that has been, you know, moving along at a modest but solid growth rate for, you know, the past, you know, 12 years uh, and is well capable of absorbing the impacts of this uh, without it 
creating a crippling shutdown or or crash of the the economic system. Uh, however, you know it it is going to mean that there's going to be increases in deficits. There's going to be uh, you know cutbacks in some programs as funds are shifted from non-vital programs to the health-related programs that the the nation is using to combat these illnesses. You know, money has to come from somewhere, so money will be shifted through the budget process uh, to cover the costs of this. You know, so the, 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 the outcome of this is that overall, uh, it is fairly optimistic that our economy has the capacity and capability to recover from this in a fairly quick fashion. Now, put fairly quick into quotation marks, because we, you know, are are not talking about a period of weeks to full recovery or a month. We are talking that it is going to take a couple of years for the economy to heal itself uh, from the effects of this disease. And to get a sense of that, you have to understand and look back as recently as 2008, when we had the the financial crisis uh, that occurred. Then, you know, it took clearly almost two and a half years for the overall economy to recover ground lost as a result of that recession. Um, you know, in that, you know, that's cause for a lot of lawmakers and, and policymakers uh, to suggest that the United States needs to move as quickly as possible to return to normalcy and to restart the economy. But you know, the question of pitting public health against, you know, the economic growth is something that, you know, should raise serious concerns among both lawmakers and policymakers as well as the people of this country. You know, we, we've talked about in prior shows, and I believe I talked about last week, that there have been, you know, politicians out there who have advocated that certain vulnerable people just you know let the disease run its course and take their lives uh, in order to reduce the amount of strain on the medical and economic systems in the country and you know we debated last week on on you know just how draconian that is and i won't get into that here uh, but you know it is those kinds of decisions that you know we are going to be looking at and facing in the coming months and years as we progress through this illness and move into the future. So, you know, there's still a lot of work to do. We still have a lot of painful decisions to be made, uh, but they're going to need to be made. And fortunately, history has taught us that the American people are very resilient, very resourceful, uh, and, you know, when faced with adversity, we rise to the occasion, and I have no doubt that we will rise to this one as well. So, you know, there there is always hope. We never we we don't want to be just one hundred percent doom and gloom, um, but you know, we we need to look honestly and and clearly at what we are facing as we look at this new coronavirus COVID-19 disease becoming more a part of our everyday and, and you know annual reality, much like the flu, much like the common cold and, and other illnesses that we just deal with. You know, and one of the things that um, 
that I heard come out of some of the news media over the past week was a medical expert, and I believe, I'm not certain, I'll have to research, uh, that they are, were affiliated with the uh, World Health Organization, uh, put forward the, the uh, idea that it is going to take 60 to 70 percent of the global population to become infected with this disease, to, to get the disease, uh, you know, obviously that's going to result in millions of people dying in order for what has been, been termed as herd immunity to come into effect and basically make the human species more resilient and resistant to this disease. Now, while that may sound horrific, uh, let, let's put it in some context. The flu, uh, influenza, shows up you know, around the world every year, and it has for quite some time. Uh, you know, we've all had the flu, you know, pretty much. We, you know, probably 95% of the global population at some point in their life has had uh, influenza or has had the flu. Uh, what that means is that, you know, since we have it, our bodies have built up antibodies against it so that when it does resurface, either we don't get it or if we do get it, it is a milder case. Not to mention the fact that we have a, a range of vaccines against the flu that has been developed over the years. This is the same path that we will, we will travel down with COVID-19. Uh, it will take some time, but eventually enough people you know, in the world will have gotten this disease where they will become more resistant to it. So its impacts on, on people and impacts on our systems will, will decrease over time. Um, but, you know, one of the things that came out in an article I saw uh, that was posted through LinkedIn uh, showed that, um, you know, the public health experts and government officials are having discussions on what we should expect uh, from COVID-19 in the coming months of years, or coming months and years, excuse me. Uh, and they, they came out with three options that they said are, are you know, one of which is, is likely to be the path that we will travel. Um, option number one uh, talks about how you know, this current uh, outbreak uh, is almost past and you know, will, be, will be done with, um, you know, and that the spike we are seeing now uh, will be followed you know, over the coming months with a, a series of smaller, uh, lesser, lesser spread, spikes and you know it will move into like the flu become sort of a seasonal thing in that you know at some point in the year people will start to come back down with COVID-19 it will go away through another part of the year and then and then resurface so we'll get into kind of a flu-like pattern with this option two uh, that they postulated uh, is that uh, one more big wave will come this year, you know, and what they see is that, you know, the, the current crisis we're going through will subside uh, over the course of the summer, but the, the version that comes back in the fall could be even more severe and more damaging and more devastating than this one. Uh, and once again, stressing our, our medical systems you know, to the breaking point and perhaps beyond, um, you know, but the people who go through this 
you know, will develop, you know, immunities. And this will reduce the scale, again, of future outbreaks, you know, going out in further years. And then the third option they see as, as a possibility is that this virus will just keep reoccurring, uh, you know, over and over and over again with no regard to season or, or time of year. Uh, but they, you know, the outbreaks will be smaller, you know, they will be medium sized, but they will continue to occur you know, I guess kind of like, you know, aftershocks after an earthquake, uh, they are, are smaller, but, you know, can locally be much as devastating as, you know, what we've seen. So, you know, it, it's, it's something we're going to have to deal with, you know, it's going to be an ongoing crisis, uh, but we will deal with it, you know, and as long as we heed the advice of our medical experts and, and do what we're required to do, you know, we will get through it. You know, we're going to take some bumps and bruises. Uh, so, you know, a couple of final points. Um, you know, as I said, as states look to reopen, let's look to see that, you know, we are using, you know, individual common sense as to, you know, putting ourselves and our families at risk. You know, I, I know we want to get back out there. You know, cabin fever is real. And spring is coming, if not here in most areas, and, and people just want to get back out. But let's make sure we do it safely. So let's mask up, let's glove up, let's practice that, that spatial distancing so that we can minimize this, this spread of this disease. Um, one other point to make, kind of in the, in the call to action category as we're running up to um, the end of the show, uh, another news blurb came out. Uh, that there has been some difficulties in some states that have early voting and you know absentee ballots that just due to the overwhelming volume of ballots being mailed in, there the post ser postal service has been delayed in getting those ballots in, and therefore they are falling outside of the counting deadlines. So if you're going to vote absentee ballot, make sure that you get your ballot and get it mailed in early so that it is definitely at your, your state election headquarters uh, in time to meet the deadlines. Don't get locked out of casting your ballot uh, just because the host office couldn't get your Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of Fired Up. I want to thank you for tuning in and you each week. We are here, we're talking about all things political from a system standpoint. This is Steve, we'll see you again in seven days. You're listening to WJMSRadio.com. Stay safe, stay healthy everyone, and we'll talk to you again in seven days. If you hear this message, wherever you stand, Calling every woman, calling every man We're the generation we can't afford to wait The future started yesterday and we're already late